Hello, and welcome once again to the History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to TV show Game of Thrones on HBO, as well as the Song of Ice Fire books by George R. R. Martin. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Steve, a.k.a. The Pergit Italian. With me, of course, is my trusty co-host. Hey, Steve, it's Aziz out here in Atlanta with a shade on my left. We are very excited to have probably our most prepared podcast to date. Part two of Varus and Illyrio, the enigmatic pair that have uh, a very deep conspiracy running that's kind of hard to see. A lot of it was revealed in this last book, uh, but a lot of it probably uh, went uh, past a lot of us. It certainly did me in my first read, and, and studying mm-hmm. got, uh, got me a lot farther in, so without any further ado, let's dive right in. Right on, and uh, yeah, and just to remind everybody, um, this is a spoiler-filled podcast. We're going to be talking about the later books, and uh, and a lot of this stems from, and if the people that watch the TV show that don't mind being spoiled, uh, stems from the conversation that Arya overheard when she was chasing cats down in the dungeons <laughs> of King's Landing. And added to that, we have Tyrion on his time on the road with Illyrio and at his manse. Uh, Illyria sort of spills the beans very subtly. It, it's not outward. He, he does tell quite a few things, but between those two scenes, Tyrion on the road with Illyria, and then later with the uh, the river crew, with Griff and young Griff and all the, those groups, they pretty much lay it all out for us, although it's very done in a very sneaky way, in a subtle way, that you have to use a lot of old clues to kind of piece it together. So... We've got a great quote here that kind of encapsulates a lot of um, how how this whole ties together, and, and it kind of speaks to the sneakiness of of what these guys are doing. Yeah, and this is actually straight out of the book, um, and it starts with Illyrio does not play Sivas, and I'm hoping that I pronounced that right. <laughs> uh, no, pronounce it however we want. <laughs> Uh, no, thought the dwarf. He plays the Game of Thrones, and you and Griff and Duck are the only pieces to be moved where he will and sacrifice at need, just as he sacrificed Viserys. So that was said to Halden, uh, Halden Halfmaster, when uh, they're discussing various things on the boat there. And of course, we'll get into more about how deep that whole thing runs. Mm-hmm. But let's start with some of the background on these main two characters that we touched on a lot in the first episode, but there's more detail we want to throw in there, stuff that would have, wouldn't have been appropriate to put in a spoiler-free episode. Uh, so one of the first things that we find out that we didn't know, but we had a, quite a fair few about amount of hints about, is that Illyrio used to be a Bravo or a sellsword, which is... Uh, he was thin, he was handsome, he, uh, he, Tyrion sees a statue that's a likeness of him, and he's very good looking, he, uh, he was a skilled fighter and duelist, and that's why, if we, we mentioned it in the previous episode, we pointed it out that we didn't say what that means, is that Illyrio was, is noted as being very light on his feet by Arya when, he, when, she, uh, when she sees him there. And so... And Tyrion notes, notices that, too. Yeah, and Tyrion notices mm-hmm. it, and that's why. Because he had, he had a lot of training when he was younger, and he was a sellsword. And uh, the statue that he sees has a sword in it, which is kind of interesting, we thought. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and you kind of have to wonder if uh, if this sword could be Blackfire. And if you remember, Blackfire is the uh, it's the Targaryen sword that Aegon the Conqueror himself actually held. Um, and he passed on his heirs, passed on until um, all the way up until Aegon the Fourth, passed it on to his bastard son Daemon. And uh, it was always owned by the king prior to that. So, um, and if you remember correctly, this is coming from the Blackfire Rebellion where, you know, they actually ran off with the sword uh, with the Golden Company. Um, it doesn't appear that the Golden Company actually has it anymore, though. Um, after Bittersteel, we have no real record of it. So, the argument would be that the sword looks like true steel as opposed to Valerian steel. Um, but it could be disguised, so we don't know. In any case, it makes us think about the sword. It's, it's, it, whether or not that is Blackfire, it certainly makes us wonder. It certainly made me wonder, gosh, what happened to that sword? It's got to be out there somewhere. We're going to bring that up again later in this podcast. But um, one thing that is, I would consider it a very obscure clue, I suppose a lot of you would as well, and it almost goes outside of normal spoiler territory, but, but we're going to throw it out here because I don't think it's something that is, uh, it's gonna, not going to ruin anything for anybody. Uh, before A Dance with Dragons was published, there was actually a prior version of one of these Tyrion and Illyrio chapters that he read at a con. And in that, at that con, uh, the earlier version of this chapter, Tyrion hears the word sword in a language he doesn't understand. He understands part of this language. I forget what the language was, but it's not important. He, uh, other pieces of the conversation that he makes out connect this sword to young Griff. Uh, and that's kind of, so people like us who, who are obsessed with the series and study a lot, that's a dead giveaway. So I think yeah. that might have been why he changed it. I, don't, I think that's why he took that out. But I don't think he changed, you know, I think he just took that reference out. I don't think he changed the plot, so to speak. So I think that is a pretty big clue that Varys and Lyria have black fire somewhere. Um, so... Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about it later because I think there's a lot to do with timing and when the sword appears, and that might matter a lot. But getting back to how Illyrio uh, was handsome, this is actually really important. Uh, he was blonde-haired, blue-eyed, slender and athletic, and the re I want, we want to kind of hammer away at that notion because it's actually going to be kind of important a bit later. So kind of hang on to that thought. In the meantime, let's look at Varus's background because of the two, he's the more enigmatic and the bigger plotter of the two. He's kind of, uh, and he's, you know, more central figure. We see him on screen a lot more. Uh, one of the really interesting things uh, about Varus is his, his, uh, the ritual that he was a part of when he was young. The whole story he tells Tyrion where his voice gets really deep and he seems really serious. And he's telling the story of how his manhood was cut off. And we talked about that more in the first episode. But one thing that we didn't bring up in reference to that is that King's blood is a as a is a as a theme throughout a song of ice and fire is a really important theme in how we're taught that King's blood has power that there's more to it than it just being you know just another person's blood or just you know anything like that mm. it has more value in sacrifice or rituals it, we're not told specifically why but it's told in so many places and re repeated by enough people that we take it as true so turn that around. Why would somebody be doing that to Varus? Maybe he has some sort of royal blood in his background. Maybe that's why he was so valuable to use in that ritual. And maybe that's why he shaves his head. 
rather to hide his hair color. Maybe he's not actually completely bald. Right. Mm. Uh, it would, that would be really sneaky, by the way, because baldness is something we already associate with being a eunuch. But technically speaking, when you become a eunuch later in life, you're a lot less likely to become to have that baldness. The baldness is is almost universally associated with uh, people who are made into a eunuch within their first few years of life, being cut when you're a boy. Um, we know this because, unfortunately, such things were done in the real world quite a bit, you know, in er bygone eras. So there's actually a decent bit of science on what happens when, when someone is castrated. Mm -hmm. So another possibility is that he's a son of, uh, like, Arian Brightflame. Uh, he, you know, we were going to bring up the possibility that he's a Blackfire, but Arian Brightflame uh, is another good possibility. Yeah, Arian Brightflame, by the way, why we think he could be a son of him is that Arian was exiled around 210 uh, for a few years. We don't know how, how long. He was, a, he was back in Westeros, though, by 232, and he was a bit deluded, as Targaryens can be, and <laughs> he died by drinking wildfire. Yeah, he drank wildfire, oh, yeah. thinking he was a dragon. He was just super deluded crazy. But while he was exiled, at least he had a few children, more than a few children, and so it's said that there are many... Uh, you know, Valyrian-looking kids there. Which is basically also like drinking uh, jet, jet fuel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm a plane! <laughs> That's like Ooh. drinking wildfire. I think it'll turn you into a jet. Yeah, drinking yeah. wildfire, I think it'll turn you into a dragon. Pretty similar uh, <laughs> comparison there. But it's also possible that Varys has made this whole thing up. This whole thing about the ritual. I mean, we point out how his voice changes and he becomes very serious. But Varys was a master mummer. The guy's trained in, like, all the theatrical arts. So yeah. he knows how to seem really serious. He knows how to seem really sincere. So literally about everything he says is to be taken with a grain of salt. That said, it's really fun to pursue this line of thinking because it leads us to some really fun places. So we like to uh, consider it at least a strong possibility that it's true. Um, so it's possible that the reason he was cut what had you know had something to do with this ritual, but it's also possible that it was sort of a half mercy. Rather than killing him outright, they just prevent him from ever breeding. So in case he does have, let's let's assume he does have royal blood. He's descended from Arian Brightflame or from the Blackfire family or something else entirely. He wouldn't be able to breed and continue that line. So he's basically yeah. the equivalent of an old man or. Um, a, a girl who can't bear children. He just—he's the end of a line, even though he's still alive. So, so he was a winner of one of the Darwin Awards. <laughs> yeah, but and of course, in a society that you know, overvalues uh, masculinity and who Varys mm. is considered a lesser that less than a man, less than a woman in a lot of cases, and kind of harmless. Which enables him to, you know, we've talked about that a lot in the first episode, how that and how he used that to his advantage. But it goes beyond that. Not unlike how Tyrion explains to Jon Snow how to turn your disadvantages into an advantage. Own the fact that you're a bastard, like, like Tyrion owns the fact that he's a dwarf. He uses it to his advantage. He's an Var Yeah, Varys <laughs> has done a similar thing. He's used this harmless, eunuch image to its maximum value, rising to yeah. about as high as you can imagine. I mean, he's, a, he's at the top of, he's a counselor yeah, he's uh, on for the, the king of Westeros, and he's, a, you know, he's spanned several administrations, so. Yeah. Talk about turning an advantage, a uh, weakness into an advantage. 
But so uh, so like I said, he's he's he got this attention from his skills. He used this he, he used his his uh, weaknesses to an advantage to such a point that he actually got a, the attention of Mad King Ares. You know, uh, uh, we don't actually know like how he got his attention. If Ares was like he specifically tried to, I imagine that yeah, he planted people there to get Ares to hear about him. Yeah, you kind of think that he skills. wanted to get noticed. Yeah, you kind of <laughs> think that, but. Uh, at the point when Ares hears of him, he's established in Pentos right there. He's been through a bunch of the different free cities. And so then Varys goes to King's Landing. He brings his little birds and financial support from Illyrio because he's coming from Pentos. Mm -hmm. And he immediately starts learning the Red Keep, learning all those secret passages. You know, we I, I like to think that he did. He sent the little birds to, you know, to uh, survey the Red Keep. But you know, maybe he found maybe he found someone that knew some of the stuff about it. We don't we don't know that. Maybe but uh, by the time Game of Thrones starts, he's been at Cork for at least eighteen years, maybe more. But he's been there for a while, which is more than enough time to find a lot of secret passages. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and the idea of the little birds actually exploring and uh, uh, searching things out makes total sense. Actually, um, a story that we actually hear uh, more than once is that Varys may have had something to do with. Uh, King Ares uh, going into madness, um, but there is some evidence that uh, that contradicts that. Um, people such as Barristan Selmy actually believe Varys' arrival is just coincided with Ares' descent into madness. But on the other hand, Varys counseled Tywin correctly. Or I'm sorry, counseled Ares correctly uh, not to open the gates to Tywin when Tywin showed up at King's Landing near the end of the rebellion. Um, now, that could easily just be self-preservation. Varys knows that Tywin maybe isn't his best friend, uh, so to speak. So, But he also correctly judged Tywin's intent. He realized that Tywin is joining, uh, isn't here to, you know, rescue the king. <laughs> He's here to join the rebels. And and despite Ares' madness, uh, Varys is, you know, doing everything he can to try and stop this from happening. Of course, he fails, and... Uh, you know, Ares opens the gates, and we know what happens after that. But there's a lot of evidence that that Varys was correct about more than just opening the gates. That he had, he was giving Tywin, or I keep saying that, he's giving uh, Ares good counsel about things that Ares was paranoid about. But remember the old saying: just because you're, it's not that old, really. But the if just because you're paranoid doesn't mean someone's not after you. There's a lot of evidence that a lot of things that Ares was worried about were legitimate threats. Oh, yeah. But, you know, that's actually a those are Most of those are stories for another episode. But let's just say that a lot of things Ares was uh, making Ares paranoid about, those were real things. They were real problems. So, I mean, we didn't know. And also, there's plenty of evidence that Ares that was mad well before Ares came. Something that kind of built gradually. And paranoia is something that will accelerate madness in, in most human beings. Yeah, and, and it's funny because uh, Varys seems, you know, it, it, through the books as well as the TV show, he does seem to know everything right now. Um, and we know there's nothing magical about it. Um, so his spy network was probably not quite as thorough as it was then as it is now. Now it's probably much more thorough. Yeah, he, he he's had time to to learn and to figure things out and to establish himself more. Absolutely. Um, 
another example, we have more examples of lunacy that, that help us kind of compare and contrast Aries. Viserys is a great example. He's a good example. He, he seemed to have become mad kind of early, but it doesn't seem like he was mad, you know, from birth. There's a couple... Danny has much fonder memories of him when he wasn't, you know, constantly afraid and when he hadn't been rejected by half of Essos. So this is more in the early days. So that's a good, another good comparison of how someone who had maybe some madness in them had it get a lot worse because of the circumstances, because of the fact that a lot of people were out to get him. <laughs> He's, you know, a paranoid guy that has legitimate fears. So, and, and Visser and, was chasing yeah. all over Essos. Or at least he thought supposedly, he was. Yeah. Supposedly, yeah. He, good thought, point. he thought he was, yes. <laughs> we pointed out in the first episode that there's a lot of evidence that he was exaggerating the danger that uh, yeah, he, he was thought, in. He thought he was in danger, but it was Lirio tricking him into yeah. being paranoid like that. Or at least yeah. Lirio playing it up, maybe yeah. saying, yeah, you sure are going to be, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so it kind of goes both ways. So but we'll consider it. We'll consider all this kind of an open mystery, whether Varys really had a lot to do with it or not. But I think we kind of lean towards Ares just being a plain old crazy person. Maybe Varys helped a little, but not even necessarily attention. Maybe poked and prodded a little bit, but that's about it. Yeah. So a little far. So let's let's talk. Let's analyze some other uh, details of Varys' background. Yeah, uh, Varys was uh, he he was known as a prince of thieves for a while, um, which is you know more or less like a kingpin or maybe a crime lord. Um, and he has someone who has other thieves actually working under him, going out and doing uh, all the dirty work. Um, he has these, this this uh, power over these other thieves in some way, and in this case, he did it by stealing from the other thieves and selling them back their own loot. Um, something back to those who had it stolen from them in the first place. Um, and this was actually facilitated by Illyrio. So they actually worked in cahoots on this. And uh, he became the re respectable man <laughs> of the operation. Basically, they would progressively target higher and higher value opportunities. Uh, you know, marks, so to speak. And uh, they they would kind of work their way up. First, they would cheat, you know, middle level businessmen, and and then just kind of as they got more and more powerful and and better at what they did, they kept rising and doing um, higher value targets. They they started off one of the big advances in their ability to do this was the development of the little mice, which eventually became little birds. We have a little theory on why they changed that name. Um, something related to the basic function. A mice. A mouse kind of creeps around and, and maybe steals things, where a bird uh, hears things and repeats them back, maybe like a mockingbird or a, uh, you know, one of those birds that talks. Because at first they were stealing. Right, because at first they're stealing golds and gems, things like that, and then later they're stealing secrets. And secrets, of course, are more valuable. So, um, and the way this is done is kind of interesting, the way this, this whole... The way the little birds are deployed, it's it's kind of a, kind of fascinating. I haven't seen it used in any other any other kind of fantasy novel or, or anything like that. Yeah, it's, it's funny because they actually uh, what they would do is they actually would sneak into these places with these you know documents you know pertaining to wealthy and the powerful people who kept uh, such as mansions, palaces, uh, trade halls, whatnot. 
And uh, once they're in there, they actually copy the information. They don't actually steal it. Um, so there's no really um, evidence that they actually stole these uh, these items. They just copied it down and copied down this information. So it's kind of easy to understand how secrets can be more valuable than, say, gold or gems. Yeah, especially the secrets of people who own a lot of gold and gems. <laughs> or, yeah. or brothels, or illegal businesses, <laughs> or, or they have people who have scandalous affairs that could be blackmailed, or... The list is endless. There's so many things you can learn. One funny thing that uh, also comes out of that is you can imagine that if, if Illyria or Virus come, uh, steal a secret and no one knows they stole that secret, you can imagine two people who are like partners who only share that secret with each other. They both start. <laughs> they both cease to trust each other because I didn't tell them. Hey, you, I didn't tell them either. Well, you must have told because I didn't tell. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and it's all set up. Um, and with the access to purchasing of, of children, most likely confirms that Lirio is involved in slave trade, uh, which is illegal in Pentost. Um, Tyrion actually makes the same observation uh, when he says, you know, quote-unquote, you have at least a finger in the slave trade, perhaps the whole hand. <laughs> yeah, and Viserys even makes references to Illyrio's slaves. And Danny herself, in her first chapter, she realizes that several of these servants are slaves gifted to him by one of his Dothraki friends. Yeah. And given that Illyrio is doing... It's funny that Illyrio is doing all these things for Danny and, and for Aegon that kind of work they kind of work against the slave trade in a way, because obviously Daenerys is, you know, torn up the slave trade and, uh, oh, yeah. quite, quite thoroughly. But... So it kind of almost seems like, is he working against himself a little bit? Eh, maybe, but not really. He's working after something much larger. I think if he takes a hit in one place and he you know, makes a lot of gains in another area, it's not a problem for him. And he's so skillful, he'd probably find a way to turn this to advantage and profit. He's probably able to drive the prices of his own slaves up, things like that. I mean, yeah. he's, but, but also he, he might just be justifying. This is kind of one of those ends justifies the means kind of deal. He's, you know, he, he might might actually be kind of against slavery himself, but he's not against using uh, what's out there. And, you know, he might justify it by thinking, well, I'm going to treat these better than, you know, another slave master. Yeah, would, cut so. out their tongues. Yeah, by cutting out their tongues, yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> you know, they, they that's do nicer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some of the slaves, I'm sure, live a much nicer lives than other slaves. Yeah, oh, yeah, I agree with yeah. that. I mean, they're not, it doesn't, it doesn't seem any, there's no evidence of them being beaten or, yeah. you know, having to work in extremely hard conditions. That we know of. I mean, well, you know, some <laughs> of them do yeah. have to climb through the, the, you know, the sewers. Yeah, well, it can be true. They die in it can there. be too hear about little birds dying. But lot, the ones so. that live, they live a nice life. <laughs> they're not, like, killed when they're too old. They just get sent to work and they're yeah. advanced. Yeah, it's, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm telling you, they're working in a mansion. How bad can it be? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's funny because uh, uh, when Tyrion is actually uh, wandering around in Illyria's mansion, um, the the threat, the common thread there seems to be that no one speaks to him. So that kind of goes back to that saying, you know, maybe they're getting their tongues cut out, kind of thing. Um, and maybe you consider that they're probably the retired birds um, and birds that don't have their tongues anymore. Um, they're only useful when they're small, as they need to fit in small spaces, they get around a little less suspiciously. Um, surely there's probably some other use once they're larger. Um, 
but likely they're taught some new skill and used for something different. Yeah, I like to think that that, that scene, Tyrion, is, is witnessing the Little Bird retirement program in action. <laughs> yeah. uh, we know that a lot of them die, so they're not all going to retire, because Arya, part of the conversation that Arya hears is that Barris is requesting new ones, and that's because several of them have died off, and, and that's that's mentioned. So we assume that they're something about how they're used is uh, you know deadly or dangerous, and it's causing problems. So, but one thing we can, even though this is all a slave trade oriented uh, deal here, we're pretty sure that that Illyria is not going to turn around and sell these slaves to someone else because they know too much about the inner workings of his operation. They're going to know all his, too many secrets of his. And don't forget, we know that, they, that they're literate, that they're, because Arya overhears Illyrio complaining to Varys about how difficult it is to find these specific child slaves that he wants. They're, they need to be young, small, and lettered. So that's not an easy combination to find in the slave yeah. market. Yeah, but yeah, because they're all, you know, mostly, they're mostly, um, they're mostly peasants who have not learned how to read. Yeah. But, so, as we said, to get back to more Lyrio stuff and not so much Little Birds, uh, Lyrio was gaining respect throughout the whole time. He was getting more wealth, and wealth brings connections, and so Lyrio had the talents to be wealthy, but... George has outright stated that it was Varys who made Illyrio a player. Illyrio might have been oh, risen to a nice, you know, you know, kind of respectable spot and had some riches, but he wouldn't have been a, re a real player without Varys. Maybe he wouldn't have even had the motivation without Varys. But in any case, uh, Illyrio eventually gains enough respect. You know, he was a sellsword in the Bravo, and uh, he marries a cousin of the Prince of Pentos. Uh, but Illyrio, after his after his wife is gone, uh, Illyrio gives up this friendship with the prince, and he uh, for a woman, a woman named Sarah, and we know a little bit about her from a Tyrion chapter, and this is, Illyrio uh, says this of her. He says, "Sarah, I found her in a Lycene pillow house and brought her home to warm my bed, but in the end I wed her, me, whose first wife had been a cousin of the prince of Pentos." The palace gates were closed to me thereafter, but I did not care. The price was small enough for Sarah. Yeah, and Tyrion actually noted that his love for Sarah um, appears to be, you know, pretty genuine and deep, as he actually makes it out to be in his uh, in his claims. Yeah, and Illyrio himself wasn't a member, so I tend to, you know, think that he's maybe a little bit more easy to believe. He's not, an, he's not an actor like Varys. Varys yeah. says something like that, and you question <laughs> yeah. it constantly. Like, eh, maybe it's true. But Sarah, interestingly enough, happens to have silver gold hair and big blue eyes, not too unlike Illyrio himself, so mm. that's interesting. <laughs> and as well as very soft hands, Illyrio <laughs> points out. Hands that eventually turn to stone thanks to her acquiring the uh, horrific disease grayscale. Uh, yeah. Illyrio keeps them in his bedroom still, these hands, and that is... <laughs> yeah, and, and, and just to point out, grayscale um, hasn't really been pointed out in the show yet. True, that's true. So, so yeah, so those you know who are don't mind being spoiled, uh, grayscale is a disease that's spreading out through Essos, um, uh, mostly in central Essos. I would say, I would say, say if you agree. It's been a problem for a long time, I guess. It just it's yeah. like a persistent but, disease. 
that's never sometimes been Sometimes there's a certain, sometimes there's a plague of it where it breaks yeah. out in an area. Right. And that's yeah. what happened. In this case, there was the Great Plague that hit, and there's a lot of people hit with grayscale. Whereas otherwise, like, little Shireen Baratheon has grayscale. Yeah. I, I was going to say, it, it even got to Westeros at one point, you know, and Shireen got it. So Illyrio has experience with people getting grayscale. So uh, as an aside, as a little side note, when it, it, what happens if Illyrio finds out that John Connington has grayscale? He might have just have a stroke <laughs> right there. His beloved uh, Aegon that uh, he helped raise is right there with John Connington, like yeah. fully near this infected, uh, you know, plague carrier here. So, yeah. <laughs> which I, I, it kind of raises a question for me: is uh, is you know Tyrion, you know, fell in the water during that grayscale attack, if you will. And he didn't seem to get it. Nope. That's very interesting. He, he somehow came out of it clean, and, and John Connington didn't. That's, a lot of people think that's evidence for Tyrion possibly having some Targaryen blood, because we were told in a few places that Targaryens have some extra disease resistance. But ah. um, that's all very vague. Yeah. yeah. But back to Varys and Illyrio. <laughs> Uh, Baris is almost certainly, as a native of Lys, he's almost certainly the connection between Sarah and Illyria. And uh, it's interesting with that, with all this talk of, you know, Varys and, and all of these characters, uh, one of the fantasy medieval tropes that Martin loves to play with are the bloodlines. There are a ton of characters in the story who, you know, with their bloodlines, their parentage are uncertain whether by us, the reader, by characters in the story, or both. Uh, you can start with Mystery of Cersei's Children. John, you can move on to Jon Snow, we don't know. And then you have, like we just brought up, Tyrion, or, you know, some funny ones like Lawless's Bastard, a.k.a. Tyrion Tanner. Or even uh, some of, all of Robert's Bastards. Uh, perhaps, <laughs> even, perhaps even uh, little Robert Aaron of the Vale. Yeah. And why haven't we heard the name of Eddard Stark's mother? Is it unimportant or, you know, is it important? Uh, and on top of that, we have Varys, Illyrio, Sarah, and, of course, the person you've been waiting for us to talk about, I'm sure, this whole episode, <laughs> Aegon. Or is he Aegon? We don't know. Is he Aegon, <laughs> is he Aegon the Sixth or not? Yep. Um, so we actually learned that all along that the plan has been all about Aegon the Sixth, if he is Aegon the Sixth. To be yeah. honest, <laughs> the plan that Varys and Illyria pulled off. So we got We're going to take us. We're going to remind you all of the way that Varys and Illyria made their fortunes. They would steal from somebody and then sell them back the loot that they stole. And this is kind of similar. We're going to try to paint a picture of how this is kind of similar to what's happening in Westeros. What they're doing is they've sort of conspired to steal stability from Westeros, to destroy the central authority, to create chaos, either through Dothraki invasion, through frayed alliances, through, you know, maybe through manipulating certain houses to fight against each other. A lot of things that we'll be detailing throughout this episode, in fact. But what it all kind of leads up to is, is, is showing how they're basically committed to wrecking... Uh, to stealing the loot of Westeros, meaning their stability, and restoring it in the person of Aegon. So they steal the stability, and they give it back at a higher price. So, 
as to that, that seems to be their kind of overall plan, and we'll come, we're going to start to talk about the details and how they made that all happen. But Aegon himself—that's a—that's a big question mark. Just you know, besides the plot, mm. you know. And and the real question is: Is he really the son of Rhaegar Targaryen? Yeah, it opens up a million questions. There's a the the, the what Varys tells us is that he switched the baby. Uh, he switched out mm. baby Aegon with someone, and that someone was who was killed, and the real baby Aegon was spirited away. There's a couple of problems with that. Uh, logistically, how do you switch a baby? I mean, you've got, yeah. you've got to figure his mother is there. You're going to tell her that, you know, hey, I'm going to take your baby. Yeah. So, I mean, Varys could potentially have just stolen it. He's, you know, he's got the secret passages. He could have snuck in and swapped one baby for another. Um, yeah, he would have had to know where to get a baby on short notice, though. He would have had to either prepare, have a baby ready to switch, which is, you know, there's all kinds of logistical problems with having a baby. Mm. Varys isn't a nursemaid. <laughs> but <laughs> and, uh, the one thing that I think does fit is that we, we, we just, we already pointed out how Varys was pretty uh, perceptive as to Tywin's motivation in coming to King's Landing. So he could definitely could see him foreseeing that baby Aegon is in danger. But, so that part's not a stretch, but the actual carrying out of this baby switch thing is... I don't know. That, it, it, it's got some problems. Let's let's say, let's say that. Also, the you know planning in advance. There's a lot of things that nah, I'm not sure. Yeah, and uh, well, certainly John Connington, uh, also known as Big Griff, uh, um, he certainly believes that this is Aegon. Uh, this is mostly because because you know he wants to believe. Uh, the hints are strong that um, he could be gay. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, he might have been in love with Rhaegar. Uh, he believes he's failed the man that he loved, and that his life's passion is to undo that failure through this, you know, probable son. Uh, in addition, Aegon is Conton's only path home. That's the only way he's got to get back to Westeros. And he, so he wants to get back and claim, you know, his own ancestral lands. Um, Griffin's uh, Roost. Yeah, <laughs> Griffin's Roost, exactly. Um, so from his own inner monologue, we actually know that this is something that he feels really strong about. It's also very clever in the writing because Connington's a POV um, takes for granted that Aegon is Rhaegar's son and forces this belief as being legitimate to the reader. Uh, let's not forget that what we've seen of Aegon at this point is through Griffin's eyes so yeah his colored glasses you know probably doesn't help matters uh, so no character believes in Aegon and his right to rule more strongly than than you know Big Griff and uh, with the possible exception of maybe Aegon himself <laughs> but there are very good reasons to suspect that Aegon is not actually Rhaegar's son as much as John Connington would like that one of them is that Connington was in the Golden Company for several years before Varys brought him into this plot. If he had the child from the moment the babies were switched, why wait so long to contact John? 
I, I, yeah, I don't know why. Maybe because the baby didn't look exactly like the baby that John Connington had seen himself. Maybe I he wanted know. to make sure the baby had the, the look. Yeah, wait you know, like, a few years till you can actually see him. You, say, this is, you can't bring some baby to John Connington, and then two years later, his hair, he's, he's you know, black hair. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray, you know, Ilya had dark hair. One of Robert's bastards. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, in any case, uh, Illyrio states, says that uh, when Maylis the Monstrous died upon the Stepstones, it was the end of the male line of House Blackfire. Uh, just a quick side note, Maylis the Monstrous is a Blackfire. He was one of the last Blackfires, like a grandson of Jamon. Uh, he supposedly ate his twin in the womb. You know, he's a conjoined twin. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, he, yeah. Yeah, he actually ate it. But, yeah. uh, you know, but he has a huge upper body and the second head just sprouting <laughs> from his neck, right, just right there. But uh, it's all good because Barristan. That one I can't imagine. Played, played him. Hmm. It's not safe. But uh, well, what we're uh, by the way, we're gonna have a little bit more about Barristan. Uh, probably recording this Sunday. Uh, we're gonna do a history of the King's God episode, so look forward to that. Mm-hmm. But in any case, well. uh. That was the end of Maylis the Monstrous and the e- the end of the male line of House Blackfire. It's a really important male line. Male. So that's, a huge that's line. pretty <laughs> much an explicit statement yeah. that there's at least one female descendant of Damon Blackfire out there. And so that takes us back to Sarah, which you know Illyrio's second wife, and she's a pretty strong candidate to be Illyrio's real mother. Uh, this is you mean Aegon's real mother? Oh, too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but open that, open that, Lirios. That'd be creepy. Yeah, we have brother and sister sleeping together. Yeah. Why not mother and yeah. Next day, Jeremy Springer. But in any case, yeah, this is the same Sarah that Illyrio abandoned an extremely advantageous political relationship for, so maybe he had some good reason for that. Yeah, I sure wish we knew how long ago she died. That would really help help us figure some of this out. Yeah. Understanding yeah, her age and how long ago she died and whether or not she's old enough to have fathered a child would really help. But Well, she's old enough to, to, to mother sure, a child. True that. She was definitely old enough to, father, to mother a child, old. but that's the father a child. Yeah. <laughs> to mother a child, yeah. but um, yes, it's possible she was too old or anyway. But it's a very strong clue. Yeah, and uh, so the, the, the real question is now is how, how did a Blackfire actually wound up in a Lysine pillow house in the first place. And if Maylis or Varys were her father, brother, uncle, whatever, um, her fortunes would have pretty much depended upon Maylis' invasion. Um, but unfortunately he was slain by, well, I don't know how unfortunate, but uh, he was <laughs> slain by Sir Barristan uh, back on the Stepstones. Um, you got to remember that Melee's was part of the Band of Nine, and that was a group who swore to help each other to achieve certain powerful goals. Um, kind of like what we do here in the real world, um, we, all these treaties and whatnot. <laughs> and, uh, Power conspiracy. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, so prior to Melee's invasion attempt, the Band of Nine had actually conquered Tyrosh. Um, so perhaps the death of Melee's um, left her friendless, likely somehow captured by one of the Band of Nine. Um, this person would no longer have any obligation to Melis, 
So from there, it'd be easy to see how she could be sold as a slave or abandoned to the point where she had no choice but to sell her body or starve. And of course, she could just be descended from one of those, you know, many life scenes that uh, Arian, you know, had. Yeah. So there's also that option. Yeah, there's, uh, we, it's a, we, we keep pointing out all these possibilities for who Aegon could really be, who Sarah and Varth could really be. On, on top of all that, there's a chance that they just made some kid up who looks like <laughs> they just wanted him to look Targaryen. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's option D is still very strong, or option C, whichever yeah. it is. <laughs> Bl- so blonde, hair, is blonde hair, purple eyes. Yeah, so they could have just, you know, manufactured that by, you know, Varys choosing the right mother and father or arranging that. Anyway, so Sarah is the mother. That does make Lyra the father, though. Uh, there, there's a lot of clues that, that fit the theory that Illyrio is the father of Aegon. Uh, some of it is just the way he behaves. He's got some kind of peculiar emotional responses to things that get brought up or things that get mentioned during his time with Tyrion on the road. Um, he mentions that he's brought some ginger candies for Aegon. This is a teenage boy. He's grown up, but he's brought candy for him. Uh, and he, it's, he's, he, he, marks, he remarks that how it's his his favorite, how it's Aegon's favorite. It's it's very, you know, it's very fatherly. Uh, he also refers to him as, here's a quote, Young Griff, the boy is called. Young Griff, the boy is called. There never was a nobler lad. Hmm. Yeah. And, <laughs> and when Illyrio and Tyrion meet up with Duck and Halden on the road, Illyrio suggests that he's going to follow them and that they're going to all have a feast together before they set off on their journey downriver. But Halden tells him that there's no time for that. They don't have time for a feast. Things are happening too quickly. So uh, he has another response to this. He says, tell the boy, I'm sorry, I will not be with him for his wedding. I will rejoin you in Westeros. That, I swear, by my sweet Sarah's hand. There are, there we go, with Sarah's stone hands again. <coughs> and when they ride off, when Duck and Halden and Tyrion ride off, Illyrio's just standing there with his shoulders slumped, kind of just standing there watching them ride off. He's kind of mm. sad. It's, it's, there's a lot of very subtle clues that Illyrio's just kind of... Disappointing. bothering him. He's, 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 you know, it's more than just fear. It's not fear. It's not paranoia. It's not concern. It's... Something else, something deeper. And Tyrion, throughout those scenes, he's just constantly thinking to himself, there's more going on here. There's more to this plot than, you know, they're not just looking for money here. <laughs> so, uh, a- a- another clue that, that touches on this whole thing. Before this, before all that, Illyrio says to Tyrion, when he's talking about his backstory with Varys, he says, I never knew why he chose me. So, yeah. call the statue... And how Illyrio was close to the Targaryen look. He had he had his blonde hair and near purple eyes. He was handsome, and so maybe he was chosen due to those features and and his skills. Besides, yeah, Illyrio is obviously a capable man. He's, not, capable. he's not just doesn't just have the look. He's not just a you know a pretty face with uh, nothing behind it. <laughs> <laughs> so when, so since Varys probably got those two together. We're back to thinking about the possibility that Varys is a Blackfire, or uh, if he's, awesome. you know, or if he's related to Sarah, and Sarah is a Blackfire, or if she's descendant of Arian Brightflame. He may have rescued her from her life as a prostitute and given her to Illyrio. Um, he he may have foreseen the two of them having a child that 
book the part. You know, we keep hammering away at that, but I think it's really important. There's a very strong chance. Yeah. That happens. So that's that's a big part of his motivation right there. So again, is there any connection to Arian Brightflint? Varys couldn't be aware that Sarah's father was Arian somehow, but uh, one thing that we noted was that Varys's background is connected to the notable, it is notable attention that he pays to the royal bastards of Robert. Very good. And yeah, yeah. why would he pay attention to them? He doesn't really support the Baratheon cause. He isn't thinking, oh, I want, you know, I want uh, Edric and Gendry on the throne. He, maybe he's thinking that he's he's sympathetic to the dangers of being a royal bastard. Just to, you know, so maybe that's there. He's not trying to put them on the throne. He's not doing anything to give them any sort of power. He's just doing nice he's things just, for he's, them. He's sending gifts to Keeping Edric's them alive. farm yeah. Yeah. and stuff like that. So yeah, that's kind of a hint there, I think. But uh, perhaps Sarah just looked the part. It's common enough in Lys. And he just knew, along with Illyrio, their offspring would look like Targaryens. Uh, and so we've shown how Aegon could be legitimate. He could be a distant Targaryen descendant, a Blackfire descendant, or just a complete fraud to two people who looked the part. <laughs> uh, so perhaps George is simply showing us here that Aegon's birth really doesn't matter. It's, it's just something to think about. It's a riddle mm -hmm. whose answer doesn't matter all that much. What matters is what people believe. Right. Well, if you're Varys and Illyria, you see it that way, and there's a good reason to think it that way. It's true. With with Stannis, Stannis couldn't convince people that that Joffrey was, you know, the son of Cersei and Jaime. So uh, even though some people wanted to believe it, and if Stannis had been a more popular guy, if he'd been more successful, if he'd been well liked, more people would have believed it. So, but Varys and Illyria, have, so they have a good reason to see it that way. Perception is reality. It doesn't matter who Aegon really is if people think he's the real deal. But mm. There actually is possibly some form of proving who he is. It may not be. There's no DNA test, but there might be a Targaryen test. Yeah, and you'd have to think about in a, in a scene of Storm of Swords where one of the dragons actually recognizes uh, Brown Ben Plum. I, I have a hard time saying that one. <laughs> <laughs> Brown Ben Plum, extremely slight. Uh, Targaryen heritage, and uh, he actually says he has a Droppo dragon uh, in his blood, and so maybe this can be a way how Aegon is outed as a fake if he is one. Right. So in other words, the dragons flew over. Uh, one of the dragons flew over to Brown Brand's shoulder and landed on his shoulder, kind of. And Daniel's like, "Oh, he likes you." Well, imagine that happening. Uh, you know, now the dragons are adults. It might not be so so cute as <laughs> that. Dragon might be like, "You're not real. I'm eating you." You know, it's maybe something like that. Uh, but or or the opposite. It could go. The dragon could be told to eat somebody, and it'd be like, "I'm not going to eat him. He's a Targaryen. He might recognize the blood or something like that." Wow. So, so, so that might actually prevent Aegon from being outed because he might actually have some Blackfire blood. That might be a device we think is going to be used yeah. to prove he's not, and then it, but it might turn around on us and maybe Considering really does that Brown Ren Plum has a drop of dragon blood, Tiny and he, bit. he's a braggart bit, you know, he's not the type exactly. of it's not going to be like, I have a bunch of Targaryen blood. Yeah. So, considering that's a drop, if Aegon just, you know, if as, as things happen, Aegon actually is somehow descended very distantly, that drop of blood could be enough to prove him as, as real. Yeah. And it gets even, the whole thing gets even more complicated when you consider the prophecy of the Mummer's Dragon, 
Well, we're going to talk about it a little more when we do an episode on prophecies, which is going to be, you know, fairly soon. Um, <laughs> but just consider the consider the concept of Mummer's Dragon, what Danny sees as a cloth dragon on poles. Uh, she can, she calls that the Mummer's Dragon. So I, I think that would actually be pretty ironic, by the way, if Varus, who hates magic, apparently, uh, his whole plan gets thrown, you know, gets gets outed and revealed to the world because of actual magic, something magical. <laughs> that would be, all these exactly. things have gone through, all these painstaking uh, procedures and, and, and plots to, to keep things hidden and to be sneaky and to make people <laughs> dragons only to have, <laughs> only to have gone a, for a very DNA test, ruin it all for him. <laughs> so, the dragons have been gone for like, what, a hundred years by this point, right? About, yeah, about a hundred and seventy, yeah, a lot, quite a while. Yeah, so yeah, they, they, so nobody knows them. Yeah. Yeah, so we suspect that that same device will be used to identify another Targaryen, maybe just one, maybe four Targaryens, you know. <laughs> but uh, it seems likely that that device will be will come up again. Uh, mm. Maybe it'll reveal Tyrion, Jaime, and Cersei, Jon <laughs> Snow. No. Or maybe <laughs> your favorite hidden Targaryen theory. Yeah, this, there's you know, a bunch of them. Yeah. Oh. Hopefully not Jamie and Cersei. Yep, you never know, but it's possible. Uh, we're gonna—that'll be a fun one. That's a little teaser for another episode. We'll get some—we'll get some thoughts on that one. That are fun. <laughs> uh, but let's look back. So now we know Aegon was the plan all along. Aegon's the real heir that that, that Varys and Illyrio are pushing. Whether or not he's legit at this point doesn't matter. So we have to look back at some of these past events and rethink what we were thinking originally. Because a lot, a lot, what we were thinking at first was that they're trying to set. Viserys and or Daenerys on the throne. But really, those two weren't that important. They were important, but they weren't the endgame. They weren't the ones who were supposed to wind up on the throne. So let's we're yeah, gonna talk about all the ways that Vars and Lyra handled those two, looking at it through this new light. Yeah, and, and uh, it's it's good to point out that Illyrio and Varys uh, they can't actually have someone else scooping up the two Targaryens and trying to gain power through them. Or chop, chopping off their parts to use in some ritual that requires royal blood. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. definitely cares about that. Yeah. <laughs> He's been there. Or, or, sending them, <laughs> or sending them off into the Dothraki Sea to accomplish, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> being amongst the Dothraki, Kalasar prevents others from gaining access. To, uh, to to them for king making or assassination, they're well protected in an isolated location. Um, Viserys will either get himself killed, hint hint, yep. uh, <laughs> that one, or, yes. or or he would end up becoming much stronger. Um, they realize that though he is weak and he's probably quite mad as his father, so his value is not very strong. Um, they really, really just want to maximize him to be a distraction to the whole to the whole game, right? So that that's, they can be raising Aegon in secret while the you know these other supposed heirs are the ones that people like Robert are going to be worried about. Yeah, um, I do think that Illyrio didn't want Varys or Viserys rather to die out in the Dothraki Sea. I think that he he. Tried to keep him behind. He tried to convince Viserys to stay with him in his mansion while Daenerys goes off into the into the Kalsar, <laughs> off into the Dothraki Sea to present her to the Dosh Talene and all that stuff. Uh, it's possible that was reverse psychology, but I think you know because he might be thinking that 
Viserys just needs to, you know, have something hard happen to him. He needs to really get tougher. He needs to trial by fire kind of thing. Run the gauntlet, rebirth by fire, any of those things. Rebirth uh, by fire! Yeah. <laughs> maybe he'll come out of that, you know, stronger and more determined. Although this does seem kind of unlike how kind of unlikely considering how awful this series really is. Yeah. But but in the end, I think it's pretty likely that they really wanted to keep him alive because he still has value because of his blood and his ancestry. Mm. Uh, and the alliance with Khal Drogo is a real thing. There's two ways that Varys and Lyra could manipulate this alliance with Khal Drogo, but they can't do anything if, Var if Viserys and Daenerys are dead because then there's nothing to bind Khal Drogo to them anymore unless he wants revenge for his wife's death, for example. But that's pretty chintzy. So they need to have at least one of those two lived, Viserys or Daenerys, in order to keep Khal Drogo as an ally and to either bring his 50,000 Dothraki horsemen, the Screamers, over as uh, an ally or as a device to cause instability that Aegon can rescue the realm from and say, oh, hey, I'm the savior, you know. So um, they don't want... Uh, to have this, and of course, Viserys is insanity. We got to keep that in mind. It's like, why would they want to work with this guy? Well, really, he's not. It's not that big of a problem, as long as he's not the guy in charge. Aegon's going to be in charge, and then Aegon's children will follow him. So Viserys would just be the crazy uncle. <laughs> so he, he, he can minimize the ins the problems his insanity causes, as long as he's not, you know, actually in charge. And Varys and Illyrio, they they see all that. This is something that they've mapped out. Yeah, and you know, at worst, you know, they're they're not not much more than a distraction, um, a dangerous pair of Targaryens that Robert could focus on, as opposed to you know focusing on Aegon when he comes sneaking in the back door. Um, so he clearly ignored them for for quite a bit, um, and Varys might have had a, a significant role in drawing Robert's attention to them and subtly pointing out the danger that they could have posed. Um, what would be another exa a, a good example of Varys' character judgment is that he's aware of a that Robert is not a subtle man. He will be forced to rely on Varys for something like an assassination. This obviously gives Varys this opportunity to manipulate the situation, thus giving him some power. Robert has this extreme loathing of Targaryen. <laughs> I mean, he just despises them. In fact, to the point that even uh, uh, Ned Stark has noticed it. And uh, that's something that was brought up in the first season uh, when uh, Ned was the, the Hand of the King. Um, after the sack of King's Landing, Robert and Ned actually argued quite brutally over the deaths of the Targaryen children. So it's good to keep in mind that they never truly resolved the differences over that incident. It was the death of Lyanna um, and, and the fact that they shared that particular grief which brought them back together. Varys quite possibly used the assassination of Danny to drive that familiar wedge between them. Um, he certainly knew of this old quarrel and had to know it would provoke um, all these unresolved feelings. So the question is now, how convenient is that the news of Danny marrying Khal Drogo reaching Robert while he's at Winterfell? <laughs> nice <timing. laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's a little too convenient there. Uh, Varys is probably trying to get them to quarrel over sending assassins to kill a young girl, perhaps the baby as well. Um, it was a kind of a predictable thing for them to disagree uh, quite bitterly over. Uh, and it just comes just literally days after Robert arrives there. And so, even as early as the first few chapters of Game of Thrones, Varys was, conspir cons was conspiring to keep the Starks out of Southern politics. Varys mm. didn't want Ned to become the Hand. Ned yeah. was the only one who was likely to pursue John Aaron's death. He liked John Aaron. And he loved him, yeah. 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 And at the end of all that, reveal about Cersei. Yeah, so, so John Aaron's death leads to the discovering the truth about the Lannister incest, and that leads to war much too soon. And yeah. so, since the beginning of the first book to the end of the fifth, several years have passed. Consider that if Ned Stark uncovers the truth behind Cersei's children within a year of arriving in King's Landing, and he could do easily do so more quickly, as he did. Yeah, he did it pretty quick. Yeah, pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that quickly. Uh, but then the realm will have a succession crisis when Aegon is only 13 or 14 years old. That's too young to be revealed, too young to make his claim. Yeah. So, at best, we're back to talking about Daenerys and Viserys, at best, Khal Drogo does come across to invade. He This weakens Westeros severely, and this allows Aegon to swoop in and save the day from the all these Dothraki. Uh, the savior aspect seems to be a big part of their angle, and it shows that ultimately the true family history and identities of Aegon, Varys, Lirio, Sarah, others don't actually matter. What matters is what people are made to believe or can be made to believe. Like we touched on before, it, Stannis couldn't just convince the realm that the Lannister children were, were not Roberts. But if you wanted the Blackfire, that would be as, as good as fact. Consider, like, you know, yeah. winner writes history and whatnot. Exactly. Winner writes history. Perfect. <laughs> so, it, you yeah. know, if Aegon saves the realm from Dothraki, starvation, his evil aunt and her uncle, general chaos and instability, if he can do that and he looks the part, well, then, you know, of course he's a true Targaryen. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, to, to go back to Khal Drogo to kind of fill out how this whole thing works. Khal Drogo, you know, he's a he's a, a man. He's uh, not going to tolerate. Man. He's not going to tolerate. <laughs> he's not going to tolerate any sort of offense against him, any sort of attempt at violence against him or his people. So, an assassination attempt on his wife is going to get him angry. That's going to be the one kind of thing that can convince him to cross the sea, because we know the Dothraki don't don't cross the sea. We know at the end of season one, Khal Drogo, it worked. This whole plot to get Khal Drogo stirred up. It worked. They actually yeah. got him yeah. to consider, not just to consider, to swear in front of his own people to his gods that he was going to cross the sea and yeah. put his poison son, water. the poison water, and put his son on the Iron Throne. He did that whole, damn, one of Jason Momoa's best scenes. He's just like, oh, yeah. It's, it's it a great, great scene. It really fires you up. And even though you know he's about to die, for people who had already read the books, you know, <laughs> it's like, wow, yeah, go get him, Call. Oh, wait, you're about to die. Darn. Uh, but... <laughs> This is why we all have been saying for a while that that plot with the poisoned wine, that was never supposed to succeed. They knew it wouldn't work. Uh, and so they, that was all just, an, just a way to get Khal Drogo to do exactly what he did, to, to get so angry to the point where he realizes that the only way I'm ever going to stop these attacks on my wife 
is by going over there and killing the guy that's sending these assassins, and that means taking out the whole Iron Throne. And, and Colin yeah. Rogue was not a man to, uh, you know, back down from that. Yeah, and we saw so these people. But why we do they know that, that that the assassination attempt is going to fail? That's a good that, question. That is a good question. Uh, uh, but we actually saw in the last, in the, in the, well, I guess the first episode of this season, they're actually sailing across the Poison Sea um, to the point where, you know, unfortunately, a couple of them were getting seasick. <laughs> um, but mostly, uh, but go back to the question. It's likely they realize that Jora is pretty much unlikely going to be the one to want to kill Danny, because um, it's he's a pretty good chance he's going to fall for her. Um, remember, Jora risked his life and lost his lordship to comfort his wife, and uh, and Daenerys is like an extreme version of his, you know, of his Lenice that he was in he love with He points out that, she, that they look really similar, Jorah does. He puts out that Daenerys yeah. looks like his wife. And just, just remember how much he gave up for her. And it's easy to see yeah. that he's not going to go through with it. So it's, it's, it's difficult to doubt. After all, so it's, after all that, it's pretty hard to doubt that Aegon is Rhaegar's son. You know, when he arrives heroic and triumphant, uh, everyone loves a savior, right? <laughs> so, oh, yeah. but the but the big thing that kind of threw the plan off a bit. We're going to touch on this. We're going to start getting into that. Is the dragons? That was the thing, the big game changer. More than Khal Drogo dying, or Viserys dying, or Daenerys not going west, or all these different things. Those are all things that they didn't that that Varys and Lyra didn't predict. The really big thing they didn't predict, though, was the birth of the dragons. Yes. So there's no way they could have known that happened. They would—they kind of expected Daenerys to die off into this rocky sea. She's a 13-year-old girl going to live amongst these savage horse lords. They didn't think she—they didn't think she was going to live. But uh, but it didn't matter to her. They, they were, of course, because they're setting up for Aegon. <laughs> so we're going to go into a bit about how the birth of the dragons changed their plans. But before we do that. We're going to read a nice, interesting quote that we, to be quite honest, we had a little bit of trouble fitting in in a nice spot in our notes, but it's a quote that is well worth, well worth quoting. Yeah. Uh, basically, that it's hard not to appreciate the way that Aegon was raised. You know, anyone, anyone wants to see a, you know, a good kid become king, and they want to see someone good on the throne, and this, this is a quote from the books about Aegon. It says, no, the eunuch's voice seems deeper. He is here. Aegon has been shaped for rule since before he could walk. He has been trained in arms, as befits a knight to be, but that was not the end of his education. He reads and writes, he speaks several tongues, he has studied history and law and poetry. A scepter has instructed, instructed him in the mysteries of the faith since he was old enough to understand them. He has lived with fisherfolk, worked with his hands, swum in rivers and mended nets, and learned to wash his own clothes at need. He can fish and cook and bind up a wound. He knows what it is like to be hunted, to be hungry, to be hunted, to be afraid. Tommen has been taught that kingship is his right. Aegon knows that kingship is his duty, that a king must put people first and live and rule for them. Something we'll touch on again later, too, the whole motivation behind Varys and Lyra. This is partly what we're building up to at the end. But we want to point out several times during this episode just... 
that Agon really is, you know, like, he seems just, like a good kid. Like, can't not like him. Yeah, I, it's I'm hard. sorry, yeah. I like Agon. I want Agon. I do. You, you gotta think, like, maybe he's a fake, he's a fraud, these two, like, kind of very sneaky uh, plotters that have this big conspiracy to put him on the throne, but you kind of like him, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I do, too. Put someone good on the throne. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost like, well, hey, go ahead and succeed with that. Yeah, yeah. go ahead, guys. Yeah, things, things that seem to change things was um, Danny having the birth of the dragons. Um, so, as we said, Danny was first meant to be just no more than a pawn. Uh, the aunt married off to a savage barbarian horse lord who either help Aegon invade or will blow the realm up to a point where Aegon can come along and just save everybody. Uh, but then Danny goes and she has three actual living, breathing dragons. I mean, yeah. these are real living dragons. And it starts to seem you no. Know, like a change in plans. Um, it might be Aegon who needs to rescue from Danny, not the other way around. Right. On top of that, there's several other things that change. Uh, things that are kind of hard to control. I mean, this is a global, a semi-global oh, yeah. conspiracy you're talking about. You can't. These two plotters can't possibly plan for everything. But of course, for them to know, it's for them to have a hope of succeeding. They have to have a flexible plan. So yeah. we can't um, account for everything. But. When you're lower down the totem pole, the, the thing's changing all the time. This might seem like the guys at the top aren't actually handling it well. It might seem like things are getting out of control. It might seem like things are failing. Uh, that comes along uh, to, from Griff's point of view. For example, a complaint that Griff has uh, really illustrates this very well. Septa Lamora points out that Illyrio could not have been expected to know that the girl would choose to remain at Slaver's Bay. Of course, she's speaking about Daenerys and her mm -hmm. seeming unwillingness to head towards Westeros. She's too busy with Slaver's Bay. Connington responds, No more than he knew that the Beggar King would die young, or that Khal Drogo would follow him into the grave. Very little of what the fat man has anticipated has come to pass. Right. And so, the fat man, of course, being uh, Illyrio. <laughs> <laughs> Who is fatter? <laughs> well, there's, well, there's one guy. There's one guy. And, you know, very little. He thought yeah. the Dash Dragons would be out years ago. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's one fatter, you know, too fat to ride a horse. Uh, in any case, this, this quote further illustrates just how much Connington is kept in the dark. We've shown how Viserys was never meant to be more than a pawn. But they they can't exactly tell Griff this. Connington is in this plot because he's a true loyalist and a lover of Rhaegar. Um, he's uh, also, you know, maybe fond of other Targaryen men. So <laughs> sacrificing Rhaegar's kin, no matter how mad, is not an option he would accept. Yeah. Um, he kind of draws a line at pretending to die from drinking. Uh, <laughs> Um, on the other hand, though, uh, losing Khal Drogo was a serious blow to their plans. Um, but this loss was also kind of balanced out by Danny having her dragons. So the conspiracy continues on, just with some really massive changes. <coughs> yeah, despite all these changes and the grumbling, uh, complaining of Griff, John Connington, 
who is, but he, he's just a pawn, remember? He's a high-level pawn, but he's still, he's not in this inner circle of this clan, though he thinks he is. <laughs> Bars yeah. and Lurio have little trouble, well, in, on paper, a little trouble, and, you know, putting it into action is always a challenge, but on paper, there's, it's, there's some pretty easy ways for them to turn this to their advantage. Remember the earlier point that one of the challenges for Aegon and, and his, his team uh, will be proving that he's real. Well, now all of a sudden he has a great way to prove his legitimacy. If he shows up married to his aunt, who no one questions her legitimacy, riding one of her real dragons, no one's going to say a damn thing about him not being a Targaryen except for anyone who's, you know, who's, who's standing on the Lannister side of things, you know. Yeah, and just imagine Aegon riding on a dragon. I mean, who who's going to question that? Yeah. Uh, anyone who doubted him before would just shut their trap. Yes, so next from that, if he's going to marry Daenerys and she can't have kids, logical extrapolation, Aegon's going to marry Arianne, Mar- Marjorie, Sansa, and Shireen. He's going to unite all the realms and... <laughs> Every crossroad, it'll be a utopia. <laughs> He'll have his harem of women. Well, everyone's pretty damn lucky, except for that whole Grace oh. thing. Shireen, I mean. <laughs> Shireen. Yeah. yeah, be careful touching her. Aside, <laughs> aside de- definitely wear a condom. <laughs> yeah. If Aegon has been this plan all along, why did they send Sir Barristan to Danny and not to him? Well, well. A crucial, a crucial part of Aegon's faction is the Golden Company. And Barristan the Bold, Barristan Selmy, he, he, he killed their captain. You know, we talked about that, Melis the Monstrous. He killed him himself in single combat. So there's a possible <laughs> chance that the Golden Company is not super fond of Barristan. <laughs> yeah. Killed their old leader. Yeah, that's not a good way to, that's not a good, good way to start off on the right foot with a relationship. <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, well, I mean, <clears throat> to bring it all together, uh, the birth of the dragons pretty much means that Danny will stall until they grow to a sufficient size. And we've already seen, you know, so far in uh, this opening season, they're getting, they're getting big pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, but she wants to get it to the point where they actually can be ridden. Um, and then after a little bit of damage control and adjustment, the situation suits Varys and Illyrio rather well at this point. Aegon is still not ready, and neither is Westeros. But by Dance with Dragons, they're wanting to hurt her go, okay, come on, let's get things together. Hurry up. <laughs> yeah, get it going. Get chop, chop, Danny. <laughs> right on. Um, so they're confused as to why she chooses to remain in Slaver's Bay. Um, and by this point, she's at Marine. And involved in their politics, the peoples, and whatnot. Um, so, from their point of view, she's almost perfectly ready. She has cell swords. She has champions, expert scouts. She has unsullied eight thousand unsullied. Yeah. Uh, most importantly, she has young adult dragons who are quite capable of slaughtering men, which they did. <laughs> At least children. Um, unfortunately, yeah, yeah. Well, little girls certainly. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, Danny only learns some control over Drogon by the end of Dance with Dragons. Uh, the other two are loose and out of control, um, with a strange horn on the way that could possibly ensnare them. 
Or mm-hmm. well, that's another question, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who ride the other two dragons? Yeah, yeah exactly. Same time. Yeah, is Euron or Victorian going to ride a dragon? I kind of doubt that, but hey. Yeah, you know, I mean, really throw us into a loop. Yeah. I mean, there's supposed to be three heads. He has yes. said. He has said that it's possible that one of the people to ride the dragons won't be a Targaryen. He said that in a quote that we were reading. We were answering someone on the Twitter page. Yeah, and he said uh-huh. that. So it's a direct uh-huh. quote from George. So maybe that that non-Targaryen could be Aegon. Yeah. Could actually end up riding a dragon. He's not a Targaryen, or he could be a real Targaryen. And uh, non-Targaryen could be so a many possibilities. Or or, 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 or <coughs> John Snow. <coughs> John Snow. <laughs> Go, John. So throughout this whole series, Varys and Illyrio have been working behind the scenes. As we pointed out at the beginning, there's some kind of mundane details that slide by. Some of the chapters that Tyrion and Illyria are talking might seem kind of mundane. Uh, some of the scenes earlier in the books with Varys, some of the little things he does, some of them seem just, well, things that Varys does. But a lot of those actually relate directly to this whole main plot. And we're going to show you some good examples of that because a lot of them are really fun, but really subtle, and a lot of them are kind of like, oh, that kind of, that kind of thing. You'll, you'll just go, oh, my, didn't notice that. So let's get into it. As we know, <coughs> Aegon's invasion force is the Golden Company. That's his, the basis of his army to beginning, mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning. These are descendants of the men who fought for Daemon Blackfire. And this is basically their path to lordship, knighthood, legitimacy. Their path to return from exile that their great-great-grandfathers fell into. Yeah, a lot but, of loot. A lot of loot. But there's also the aspect of revenge that a lot of them are looking for. Um... And there's some clues that explain their loyalty beyond what is stated openly, such as. I, I, well, I and and just to remind people that the the Blackfires, you know, of the gold for the Golden Company, uh, the Blackfires founded the gold. Well, helped lead the Golden Company, I should say. Um, they were descendants from a bastard, basically. Yes. Of the target, you know, from Targaryens earlier, so it's a big deal that you know that he's got these people leading this, and they have, you know, they're the ones with the golden skulls on the pikes, you know, okay. whatnot. Um, I so, think, frankly, very interesting that that uh, they're willing to have Aegon, you know, work with the Golden Company and maybe eventually get Blackfire, because in my eyes, I would be a little bit like. Well, then he's a Blackfire. If I was in Westeros and some piece of came in with the Golden Company and the sword Blackfire, I would be like, well, he's a Blackfire. Yeah, I'd be very suspicious as well. It's a calculated risk they're taking, but I definitely, I I don't know, that's where I would be coming from personally. Yeah, they're kind of counting on him being so amazing and and, uh, such a great example of of nobility and and Mm -hmm. warrior virtue that they're hoping that people just like him and are willing to believe the good things about that people are saying instead of believing the slanders that other people might be saying. So, yeah, they just hope the wind blows the right way, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And it should be noted, uh, okay, so uh, back to what we were talking about, uh, Illyrio actually has a quote. Um, He gave it when he was kind of drinking. Um, (laughs) He says, quote, unquote, some contracts are writ in ink. And some in blood. I say no more. Um, this, this might be a clue that Aegon is a Blackfire, and they they were the cause of the Golden Company's founders originally supported. 
And so this would explain why the Golden Company ignores Viserys. Because they know about Aegon. Well, I mean, only a few know the truth. We're told that, just to interject, we're told that Viserys had tried to win the Golden Company to his side early on. This is one of the earliest Danny chapters is mentioned. Fool, mm-hmm. even tried. Yeah, but they did not... They did not... Uh, <laughs> <stab> <laughs> Danny remembers it as them laughing at him. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so in... Uh, in Connington's chapters, he thinks upon how Miles had been a part of the Aegon conspiracy. He knew who Aegon was. Perhaps he knows more than Connington, actually. Uh, yeah, this is Miles Toyne, Black, also known as Blackheart, who, yeah. who unfortunately had died before Connington rejoined the, the Golden Company. So, but he was in on this whole thing. He's an important part. Yeah. So, um, sorry, I got a little bit thrown off by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Illyrio himself points out that a dragon is a dragon. They just want to go home. So if that's true, why didn't they back Viserys? That he's insane is a good reason, but a better reason is perhaps that they had a superior candidate, which, I mean, if Miles Toyn knew, then yeah, they did. But, uh, so, not only this, but Blackheart and Connington possibly already know that Illyrio and Varys uh, have planned for Viserys and Daenerys to be the key to getting a Thraki alliance, so they wouldn't interfere. They don't want to, you know, help with the Golden Company. When that'll that'll dissuade Viserys from going with the Dothraki. Exactly. And this is uh, actually well before um, the invasion. Um, Varys and Illyrio made quite a number of moves. Uh, we learned that Illyrio made multiple bribes to the Valentine, which is you know out of Atlantis, uh, Triarch. Uh, Nyesos of the Elephant Party, as in those who favor trade over war. Um, Illyria wants to keep the Volantes peaceful. Um, normally you'd think bribing a guy in a peaceful party to stay peaceful isn't quite necessary. But... It appears that the Yunkai have outbid Illyrio for Nyesos' allegiance. Uh, that's not really a surprise. Illyrio is extremely wealthy, but we're talking about the entire... Of nobility, the ruling class of Yunkai, which is a slaver city, so they're you know, fabulous. Very rich. A lot of them individually probably aren't wealthy than Illyrio, but uh, together they can probably blow him out of the water. Uh, not only that, but Nysos himself apparently is a big uh, has is a big uh, part of the slave trade, so it's going to be kind of hard for any amount of bribing for this guy to kind of go against his home team, so to speak. So uh, it's kind of an uphill battle. So he's a, he's kind of already a natural enemy to Daenerys. Yeah, and we actually see at the end of, uh, of the last book that the Valantes have gone pretty much to war with Danny, as well as assisting Griff and the Golden Company to try to land in Westeros. Um, they brought him all the ships and stuff. Um, and since the slavers, you know, couldn't actually buy the Golden Company for themselves, the best thing to do for them was to ensure they could not be hired by their own enemies. So they're more than happy to ferry them, basically, across the the narrow sea, the 10,000 hired killers away from Essos, and even further from Daenerys. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, moving on to various regions in Westeros and how Varys and Lyra would be analyzing them. He wants to make sure that you know, the Riverlands won't, you know, be a huge uh, problem for Aegon. First of all, everyone has to be accounted for, basically. Yeah. 
So he first he realized the Martell's pretty likely to join Aegon's cause if they think he's legit. Since that would be Doran's grandson, that's Elia's son. Yeah. So, you know, we uh Yeah, and well, well we cover much of that um in the Doran's outlook in our uh Ariane spoiler chapter episode uh that we did a few episodes ago. Yeah, I highly recommend that you check you guys check that out if if this if if you want to relate it all to this because we don't want to go into we don't want to kind of re go back over ground we've already covered. But so moving on from we covered Dorn, uh, he would be like the West is the enemy and the Riverlands are firmly controlled by Lannisters and Freys. So those guys are just the enemy to be killed, and someone else will be put in their place. So Aegon's going to marry a Frey girl, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe several of them. Yeah. Add her to the add him to the list. Add, add one of those to the list of his harem, right? But yeah, right. Really though, the the Lannister situation is really interesting because it a lot of has fallen apart for them. A lot of things have gone bad. But when you look at all of it and as it has the how things went wrong, you realize just how much Varys had to do with all of it. Uh, it's really a masterstroke the way he got Tyrion and Tywin, the way he handled those two in particular. Uh, he got a little bit of luck. Certainly, the way certain things worked out, and the way the, the fact that Tyrion and Tywin already are kind of at odds with each other, that certainly helped. But Tywin's the real power, you know, behind the Lannisters. We know that. Mm -hmm. uh, his death was huge uh, as far as striking a blow against them, and may, kind of made a lot of other people speak out and say, oh, wow, the game has changed. Tywin's dead. That, man, that's, that's different. Mm -hmm. um, but what Varys does with Tyrion is sort of recruits him. He kind of brings him over very gradually, and he does this through a um, sort of a process very gradually. First thing he does, he sort of gets close to Tyrion. He he proves that he knows about Shay. So he proves that he says, I could totally you know out you here. I could mm -hmm. let everyone know that, especially your father, that you're doing something that he expressly forbid. But instead yeah. of blackmailing him, he helps him. He helps him get to Shay. He helps him conceal her. Helps him have sex his own room. <laughs> yeah, they have yeah. sex in yeah. room. And he starts telling Tyrion secrets of his own. He gets Tyrion, tells him some stories of his past, and Varys, you know, uh, he returns the favor. So they start to bond a little bit. They become, there's a bit of trust. It's not, you know, Varys doesn't trust Tyrion, and Tyrion doesn't trust Varys, but they trust each other more than, say, they trust Littlefinger or other people at court. Um, yeah. It's a kind of an uneasy alliance. And it, it builds up gradually throughout the books. At one point, Varys even points out to Tyrion that Tommen is tractable, more easy to rule through. Bronn actually points that out, too, in a separate scene. Um, maybe he yeah. was encouraging Tyrion to move against Joffrey you know, really early on. That's just a, it's a side note there. I don't really know for sure. But, it's, but for sure, there's this pattern evolving of, of Varys slowly getting Tyrion to trust him more and more. Yeah, and as as for his father, um, Tywin and Tyrion, they already had issues with each other anyways. Um, so Varys didn't need to do much to really, you know, kind of help that divide. Uh, once Tyrion went on trial for Joffrey's murder, you, you can actually imagine Varys thinking, hmm, this is kind of too easy. <laughs> Yeah, so he actually prefers to recruit Tyrion, but his death wouldn't be a bad thing either. Yeah, as long as Tyrion isn't against him, he'd rather have Tyrion as an ally, but he doesn't want Tyrion as an enemy. So, if Tyrion, Tyrion on trial either means he's 
forever, you know, removed from the Lannister cause, or he's dead. <laughs> so, let's, but let's examine what happens when, when Jamie comes to Varys and is kind of like, you're going to let Tyrion out. Well, we don't know whether Varys maybe would have done something similar anyway, but, but it certainly worked to his advantage. And there's a few very peculiar clues that indicate Varys had foreseen quite a bit of this. It's almost... It almost makes you go back to thinking that Varys does have some sort of magical foresight thing. It's just crazy how, how well he plans this out. Pick, go back to the scene where Tyrion is being led through the underground tunnels after getting out of jail, after being let out of his jail cell, and after he's already had his argument with Jaime. Yeah, and he's asking. Varys kind of points out slyly that, "Oh, hey, we're kind of vanilla. We're you know we're really really near your old quarters, the you know, the hands quarters here." <laughs> And so Tyrion finds himself asking questions about exactly where are my father's chambers? How do I get there through these tunnels? And Varys is saying, oh, you shouldn't do that. But it's exactly 237 steps up to the left, four steps to the right. He's giving him very precise directions <laughs> while you know, going, oh, but you should yeah. But, you but should he's do like, that. 24 steps, Kirk and left, go to, you know, it's extremely precise. Yeah. So I think you kind of really realize that Varys is just kind of pretending to not want But he actually is kind of happy that Tyrion is asking for these directions. So Tyrion yeah, follows and, these directions. <laughs> yeah, and he does. And, uh, and, and you, you'll actually see that if you actually reread the chapters. It's, it's kind of almost obvious. <laughs> so <laughs> so once... Yeah, exactly. So once Tyrion actually gets through these secret passages, and he's at Tywin's chambers, um, the, cha the, the chambers of hand through secret passages... Um, he actually looks around, and he notices the the way certain items are placed around him, such as the crossbow made accessible only because the chest placed directly below it. Yeah, that's peculiar. But also, we there's some evidence uh, that Tywin that the fact Tywin was going to be sitting on the privy was known. Um, that's crazy. Yeah, even that is even that Varus may have had a hand in. Uh, yeah, we've actually heard of, um, of the poison that does the thing called it's called widow's blood, named for its coloring. And Pycelle refers to it during Tyrion's trial over the death of Joffrey. What it does is it basically clogs up a person's bowels and bladder to the point that they eventually die. Uh, Tyrion gives a non-lethal dose to Cersei at one point, enough to keep her out of action for a little while. Almost certainly, Varys knew that Tyrion would find Shay, and this would likely send him into a rage. Uh, that kind of rage that might be strong enough to, say, inspire murder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, consider how hypocritical this would seem to Tyrion after threatening to Hang Shay himself and whipping Alaya, 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 anyway, and of course Taisha. So, uh, so yeah, what a hypocrite! Really, he's he said you can you'll, you can't bring a whore to court. I'll hang the next whore you find in bed, and then he finds this that whore in bed with, with you know that Tywin. What I mean, come on, <laughs> right? But in the end, Lord Tywin Lannister did not, in fact, shit gold. Tyrion shoots him, he dies, and that's that. So now Tyrion has nobody that will accept him. He's killed his own father, 
Everyone in the realm hates him. He's pretty much pushed himself into a corner where the only team, quote-unquote team, that he can play for now is Team Varus. Well, the, the thing is, I do really, really, really want to see how they're going to play that scene out in the, in the TV the show. show. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Probably until season yeah, four, I mean, but yeah. Char- Charles Dance, Charles Dance sitting on the toilet. <laughs> yeah. With, yep. with a bolt, with a bolt through his stomach, <laughs> squirting poop everywhere. We get to see, <laughs> we get to see how Charles Dance does a, a death scene. <laughs> yes. I, I, I want to see this. I want to see this. <laughs> Do you now? Yeah. <laughs> I think it would be hilarious. I'm gonna. I, I would loop it to a GIF and just post it on my <laughs> Facebook page over and over. <laughs> so, uh, back on track. Anyways, the Avengers yes. fight the loss, the huge loss of Tywin and Tyrion. They're not completely lost. They still have Kevin. Kevin's doing a good job. He's strengthening the bonds between House Tyrell and, La- and Lannister. And mm-hmm. Mace and Kevin are working together, and there's other Tyrell bannermen on the council. So, Varys murders him and, and Grandy's surprised self. There's no surprise there. Just killed him. So, essentially, Cersei is the only senior Lannister in power. And given her previous paranoia about Marjorie, she'll probably suspect the Tyrells of the murder. Hysel was loyal to House Lannister, so this will be a huge strength to Lannister's power. Like, this is the kind of thing a Tyrell would be expected to do to get there. They want to get a Tyrell in, a maester in there. Especially Cersei's point yeah. of They've even tried to get a Tyrell, uh, you know, a grand maester in there. Yep, this is Failed. exactly in there. It fits so perfectly. It fits really perfectly. Oh, no, so, absolutely. With all that going on, back to we're going over the various regions and how Varys has to account for them. House Tyrell can pretty easily be detached from this Lannister alliance. Mm-hmm. Their reason to fight against Aegon rests solely on the soft golden curls of poor little Tommen, <laughs> king of the Iron Throne. Little Tommen who loves kittens and stamping wax. <laughs> if he dies, House Tyrell's uh, support for the Baratheon Lannister faction uh, becomes pointless. It's, yeah, they're, yeah, it's Cersei and Marcella then. Like, who are they married to at yeah. this point? They can't marry Marjorie to any of them. Yeah, they don't care about that. <laughs> And uh, it's not exactly a rosy combo for the flower-minded Tyrells. <laughs> I no. said that just for We can't resist our little, our little uh, goofy... Uh, we, we, were, we were doing notes, and we add, if you didn't notice, this episode has been a bit more humorous. Because we were <laughs> yes. in a silly mood when we were doing notes. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to chase some of these threads and these conspiracies can really just... You just get lost sometimes, and you got to have a little sense oh, of humor. Yeah. You just go crazy. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Hey, hey, I'm all about humor, so bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> so as we discussed in the House Tyrell episodes, which I highly recommend, folks, we did a good job. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was, a, that, that was a good episode. The flowers bend to the brightest sun. They don't go their own way. So without no. a claim to the throne, they don't, they don't have their own claim to the throne. They've just been trying to marry their way into the throne this whole time. They tried to marry into the Baratheons, and they tried to marry into mm-hmm. the Lannister slash Baratheons that are really just Lannisters, but... The realm sees them as Baratheon Lannisters. So, the Lann- you can really say that the Lannister sun that the Tyrells depend on is setting. And the and the sun of Aegon is rising. Is and of course, already? <laughs> so, you know, they've 
there's plenty of reason. And of course, the Tyrells had, you know, in his throughout history, they've pretty much been Targaryen loyalists. So they can kind of point to that if they decide to abandon the Lannisters and join up with Aegon or whoever. They can say, "Hey, look, remember, we've always our family has supported the the, the Tyrells or the Targaryens for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah we did that yeah. before, right? Yeah, we can yeah, join yeah. you, right? We can. We're 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 on your side." Yeah. So Varys started this ball rolling, as Ashea pointed out, with this wedge uh, driven between them. So it's going to be hard for Cersei to resist that paranoia that she's got. We, we mentioned several things that she was already worried about. And then there's this trial coming up between oh, uh, the Faith, the Seven, and the Sir that she's going to be a part of, that Marjorie's going to be a part of. So we kind of foresee this, this breaking apart kind of rapidly. I mean, not only is the, the strength of House Lannister falling apart, but their leadership is completely in tatters. Varys just keeps man manipulating things so that it's always Cersei in charge of the <laughs> Lannisters, which, once once that's in, in, uh. in play, he just has to let things take care of themselves. <laughs> She'll just ruin it. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's funny, I mean, because uh, that whole trial business, uh, it gets real complicated for those who not read the books, if you're still listening. Um, <laughs> the the, the whole trial business gets real complicated. Uh, a lot of people get accused for various things. You know, Cersei gets arrested, dragged through the streets naked, blah, 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 blah. Um, but uh, before all that, um, Varys, as his little alter ego, uh, as the jailer, he actually plants evidence that he was on the take from the Tyrells. And in a feast for crows, uh, Kyburn, who we just met in the first episode of the season, yeah. finds. Yeah, I was like, I was excited when he said Kyburn. Like, ooh. <laughs> yes. And cool. uh, yeah, he finds gold, gold coins that are particular to the Reach in uh, in uh, Rugen's chambers. Uh, Alonia Tyrell, who's known as the Queen of Thorns is known to use golden coins from the time of the Gardner Kings. This is not nostalgia, but an actual swindle, uh, full-blown. She agrees to a price with a merchant and then pays him in these old-style reach coins, which happen to be half the weight of the standard of golden dragons. And no one argues with her because she's the Queen of Thorns. They're not going to say, oh, the Queen of Thorns yeah. cheated. So she oh, just yeah. Oh, hell no. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, no, they, they, nobody disputes. They don't call her out on yeah. it, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, no one's going to dispute the Queen of Thorns. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this actually leads Cersei to believe that Rugen, <laughs> aka Varys, <laughs> was bribed by an agent of Oleana or another Tyrell into releasing Tyrion, which immediately leads to the death of Tywin. So, from Cersei's point of view, the Tyrells are essentially part of the assassination of Tywin. So, Varys has done quite a bit. That's like three or four significant things he's done to break the Tyrells apart from the Lannisters. Oh, absolutely. And, but, um, but notice that he's mostly doing it to the Lannisters. He's doing things to separate the Tyrells but he's doing it in a way that harms the Lannisters. The Tyrells have been left pretty well alone. No one's really died. Yeah. No one's really... really no, been, no one's died from the Tyrells. So that's an important like factor in all this. Absolutely. And, and into other areas, um, such as the North, 
um, Sansa happens to be the key in there. No, because don't forget, folks, Bran and Rickon, Bran would be the true heir, but everyone still, except for a couple mm-hmm. people, think those two are dead. So Sansa is really the one that everyone thinks is the key to Winterfell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, her, the fact that uh, um, her, mar- her marriageability, for lack of a better term, also means that yeah. <laughs> she has the potential to link to another major house. Um, say such as the Vale. Uh, she also has strong ties to the Riverlands. Unfortunate for Varys, she is quite well in Littlefinger's hands. <laughs> so he has little ability to manipulate her claims. But Varys could be taking this into account, knowing that Littlefinger will use her claims for his own gain and calculating that there's a pretty strong chance that Sansa will consolidate several powers. It, it seems that it's just happening right now. She consolidates mm-hmm. the Vale and the North below her. The Riverlands have, you know, they they want to honor her in some way. That means that all he needs to set, like, all he needs to do is sit back and allow this to happen. Then he negotiates peace or an alliance with this single kind of united faction that is the North Riverlands Vale, and he brings them all into the into the realm into his alliance, and it makes it a lot easier for him. Possibly be by, uh, you know, maybe he even somehow manipulates a situation where um, Sansa could marry Aegon. Of course, yeah. if that happens, she's not going to have married into the Vale. But she's gonna, her husband's going to die, she'll bring, you know, all that stuff. Couple of ch- yeah, there's a couple of ways that could work out. But any, oh, but yeah. any case, even though that is kind of out of Varys' control, we can still see how he may have planned for it. Um, That's why he lets maybe why he let Sansa go. Maybe he, he considered that, and he was like, "Because it's always seemed kind of peculiar that he hasn't had much to do with her. He has seemed he's been looking for her. We know that he's bribed some people to kind of help find her. Yeah, but uh, you know, he maybe he hasn't tried as hard as he might because he's got other things in mind. But beyond all that, the North itself is kind of in tatters. Even if Varys can't get a handle, so to speak, on the North, does he need to? Mm-hmm. They're really just torn apart. I mean, there's winter. There's the Boltons and the Manderleys and the Freys and Stannis are fighting against Stannis and his host and, you know, some of those guys you don't even know which side they're fighting on. In any case, it's chaotic and there's lots of people dying and they're very well distracted. So mm-hmm. uh, there's an argument to be made that Varys just doesn't need to care about those guys. They're well too distracted with their own problems. Um, and, of course, we know there's a huge battle about to fight. So it's about to even get worse. We know that at the end of Dance there was about to be a, a, the Stannis' men were getting ready and the the, the phrase and Manderleys and some Bolton men had gone out to fight them. And so, as we the reader know, you know, the whole world could just end. <laughs> yeah, maybe all the others the just sweep down and it's all <laughs> irrelevant. Yeah. But, uh, so, really, Aegon the Sixth doesn't need to worry about the North a whole lot. Uh, it's not a huge obstacle as far as getting to the Iron Throne is concerned. Bale, however, would be a fine ally and a, a, a harsh enemy because they have been unravaged by war. Yeah, so that's They're, they have tons yeah, of troops yeah. still hiding out in the Vale, so you can get the Vale to fight for you. That's pretty sizable troops right there. But, but or maybe they'll just continue to sit there yeah, as long as Lysa's in charge. They consider to sit, consider, uh, you know, keep sitting there and don't <laughs> fight for someone else. Yeah, just like just yeah. like with Tyrion or the Tyrells, it doesn't matter if they're an ally as long as they're not an enemy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They sit still. It's it's you know that's that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> as, long as, uh, yeah. as long as they're not fighting for our enemies, that's the only thing they're worried about. Exactly. Yeah, and also um, in Stormlands, uh, prior to Aegon the Sixth um, invading with the Golden Company, um, 
the, the Stormlands were already depleted and divided, um, and Stannis still held Storm's End. Uh, it seems as though Aegon, with, uh, of course, Connington's aggressive generalship, will take control of the Stormlands, and it might even show them as a legitimate contender. So the question is now, who would Aegon award Stormlands to? Gendry? Yeah, Gendry, I like that choice. Give it to Connington? He could give it to Connington. He wants to give it to somebody that's going to be important, that's going to, you know, re- it's going to be an important re- reward to somebody as a motivator yeah, to be a crucial supporter. Yeah, see who's, uh, yeah, you know, crucial in the, in the coming battles. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So really, we've covered pretty much all the regions except for the Iron Islands, and the Iron Islands are kind of in a similar situation to the north in that they're really busy with their own thing. Uh, they're not necessarily torn apart by war, but they have been fighting a lot, and they're actually what they're ha- what they are kind of focused on right now is kind of fits pretty well with what Varys and Lyra are doing. They're attacking the western coast of of southern Westeros uh, pretty uh, determinedly. So they're they're basically fighting the Tyrells. So either so if the Tyrells join with Varys's faction, with Aegon's faction, rather, that's good. But if they don't, well, they're still busy fighting the Iron Islands. So that's at least two kingdoms that are kind of, kind of you know, they're kind of distracted pretty distinctly. So that works out pretty well for them. Yes, yeah, so uh, it looks like all the kingdoms. So Aegon is, yeah. You can really see that the political and military situations in basically every kingdom pretty either favor Aegon or are not a significant problem. Uh, so... And this is really almost every situation that we've mentioned has something that Varys uh, made happen, something that was distinctly uh, impacted by things that he did. So this guy, his webs have been weaved all over <laughs> Westeros. His webs have been weaved. Yes. Oh, no, absolutely. Said that well, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's definitely true. Then you know that's why they call him the Spider. So, uh, um, so once Aegon's on the throne. So what happens next? Uh, this is kind of a big question that we've not really raised yet. So what's in it for Varys and Lirio? Uh, are they just trying to build a peaceful realm? Uh, these are guys who made it to the top by scamming and stealing and blackmailing and uh, blueballing. <laughs> of course, Varys. Varys is Varys can't be blueballed. <laughs> yeah, he, he can't be blueballed. Um, but they, can these two guys, you know, who cut the tongues out of mouths of babes, really be striving for the greater good? That's the real question. Uh, perhaps all they expect are lavish rewards from a grateful king. But there are some problems with this notion, which probably all of you realize after this whole episode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, Elurio himself actually states that uh, he has no interest in a drafty Winterosi castle. Though he does seem to have an endless appetite for wealth. But Tyrion, who, as we've said multiple times, tends to be accurate with his judgments. Um, he's very astute, very perceptive. He doubts that this is about profit. He, does, he thinks there's something more to it. We touched on that earlier in the episode, that there's something more to this scheme for Illyrio. Uh, and, but of course, at the, that point, Tyrion ha- hasn't yet figured out that there even is an Aegon. All this time that he's with Illyrio on the road, 
he's thinking that she's talking about Daenerys. It's, it's all very vague. And then when he gets on the riverboat with, with Yandri and Yasilla and Griff and, you know, and, and Aegon, he figures it out. Uh, partly maybe through trading secrets with Halden over Syvast, but, but in any case, he figures it out. So it's kind of, yet again, an example of George giving us the clues before he gives us the mystery. We don't even know there is an Aegon until Tyrion figures him out on the riverboat. But all these clues as to who Aegon is, who his parents might be, who's been setting him up, how they've been hiding him all these years, he tells us all that before he tells us there even is an Aegon. So, once again, folks, I highly recommend rereading the series, if not rereading that, just that <laughs> book, because there's just so much that comes before. And, and that's Dance with Dragons, right? Aha moment. It's wonderful. It's like reading a whole new book. It's, it's so, the Dance with Dragons that all that's in, right? Yeah, yeah. All the, basically, Tyrion's okay. first two and three chapters. It's just this time with Illyrio on the road, and it just fills out this whole virus Illyrio conspiracy. But you don't know he's doing it until you you know you go back and see it for a second time, maybe. Uh, unless you're a lot more um, astute than I am. So. <laughs> <laughs> so we are coming back to a question we've asked several times throughout this, this, this podcast. We don't know the answer, but we want to keep asking the question because it's fun. Is Varys Sarah's brother, uncle, or a cousin? So his motivate. That's good. Explain his motivations. Remember that right now we're trying to focus on the why and the what they gain from it. What Varys and Lyrio, it's You know, it's easy to think. Oh, they're putting these guys up on the throne so they can gain something. But it, but Tyrion's thoughts that it's got to be more than that really throw that notion, you know, to the side. Make it agreed. It's a bigger question. Yeah, and you know, perhaps Varys has even lied to Illyrio about about <laughs> who certain people are. Illyrio himself yeah. is being played. You just made my brain hurt even more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, vice versa. If Illyrio truly loved Sarah, and we we talked about how that seems very likely. Uh, here's a scenario. Here's a possible scenario. Maybe Lyrio loved her so much uh, that he, you know, this child that he had with her is he wants, he really wants to see this child go far. He wants to see this child have his birthright as as they see it as his birthright. So mm-hmm. maybe she was dying. Maybe she made a deathbed request of him, not unlike Leanna saying, Ned, promise me, Ned. Maybe yeah. it's something like that where. Sarah is saying, promise me, Illyrio, put our son on the throne. So, uh, and maybe Varys truly does want to serve the realm. Maybe he's, you know, he's witnessed the sack of King's Landing. He witnessed yeah. many other horrors. Maybe he really does just want peace for the small folk. Uh, the, those same innocents who suffer when those high, the high lords play their Game of Thrones. Oh, or, know, not. Right? or not. Or not. <laughs> Or not. We sure answered a lot of questions here. We really did. We asked ourselves so. questions and we answered them. So that's it, folks. This is our Varus and Illyrius conspiracy laid out as best as we can. Uh, it's very complicated. Yeah. Uh, it took us a couple of read-throughs and, and run-throughs to get it all down. And hopefully you don't have to listen to this podcast twice uh, to get it figured <laughs> out. But you certainly won't complain if you, if you do. Um, with that in mind, it probably creates a lot of questions. We may have missed some angles. We may have not explained some things as thoroughly as we'd like to. Um, so feel free to post questions on our Facebook wall. Absolutely. Send them to Twitter. Send us to our email account. Uh, yeah. We're at, at Westeros History on Twitter. Uh, WesterosHistory at gmail.com. 
facebook.com slash Westrose History, all the usual spots. Oh, yeah. And uh, speaking of uh, emails, I just want to touch on uh, one in particular um, that we actually uh, we actually received an email. And let me see if I can find it real quick. One question that I want to throw out there that we were planning on tackling this episode that we didn't was, is Varys the perfumed Seneschal? That's oh. yet another aspect of the visions from Danny's House of the Undying. Uh, actually, maybe that's not from the House of the Undying. It might be a warning from Quake. Either way... Yeah. We've decided to answer that question in the Prophecies episode, which is going to come out in a couple months. Uh, there was just so much we had to cram into this episode that things that we could somehow attach to another subject, we decided to do that whenever we could so that we could kind of keep this tight and mostly about the Bars and Lyra conspiracy. But, uh, so that'll be that'll be answered later. Yeah. And Steve, had you that email pulled up? Email. I'm still looking for that email. Basically, uh, we, it's, a, it's a question about... It, Marwin, perhaps, Marwin. Seneschal instead. So we'll also touch on that more in this in, in that uh, upcoming podcast. But just to kind of as a teaser, the the uh, the user or the user the reader brought up the question: is the possibility that Marwin is the perfume Seneschal because of the danger yeah. uh, perceived to him and the fact that he was probably catching the ship, the cinnamon wind, which has a fragrant sound to it, perfume Seneschal, um, yeah. and Var- and Marwin could be someone that Danny needs to worry about because he's got this very kind of uh, disturbing background and he worked with two people that turned out to become enemies of Daenerys down the road uh, yeah. in particular Miri Maz Dur uh, so and another one uh, would be Kyburn. now Kyburn hasn't specifically done Daenerys any harm but he's clearly not a good guy he's clearly a yeah. good guy so Marwan's associated with some pretty dark characters so in that yeah. sense he could be someone for her to worry about but. yeah it was a great question, and uh, and I like your response to to the the listener on that one. So yeah, th- again, thanks for you know emailing us. Uh, again, if anybody else has any questions or concerns or complaints or whatever, email us, Twitter us, you know, hit us up on Facebook. You know, um, pretty much everything is under History of Westeros or Westeros History. Yep. One other last note before we before we uh, end this episode, folks. Um, during the season, this is this this. Uh, if you're listening to this much later, this this podcast is coming out after one episode of, of season three has happened. So what we're going to be doing during the season is we're going to be putting out a podcast pretty much every week. We're going to be putting uh, more work mm-hmm. into it, and we're going to be doing topics that are related to issues brought up on the show. Uh, Shay, I mentioned earlier that we're going to be doing our next episode is going to be on the history of the Kingsguard. Uh, in particular, we're going to focus on Sir Barristan, but of course, we're going to talk about every other Kingsguard knight that ever gets mentioned in any yeah. of the books. Every other, yeah. So all, yeah, all of them, including so, the unknown one. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're going to. So we're also going to be covering House Tully. Probably touch on the Wildlings, things like that. For so, sure, touching on House Tully. For sure, touching on the Wildlings. Absolutely. So, so if you have yeah. folks have some things that, especially if it's brought up, if, especially if it relates to the show, things that yeah. were brought up during the show, let us know. It might become a topic. If you suggest a topic that we end up using, hey, we'll throw your name out there too. Okay, and one one final note. I just want to get your opinion. When they introduced Barristan Selmy as following around Danny, were you <laughs> disappointed? I was disappointed as to how I they introduced it. I, 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 I wanted I more was. mystery. I wanted, because to me, it should have been more mysterious. Who is this guy? I mean, when we found out, like, 
right away. Oh, it's embarrassing to tell me. I felt like they're, they could have gotten away with keeping it secret, you know? And the viewer knows who he is, but Daenerys doesn't. But I feel like there would have been way too many dumb jokes and memes and stuff like that about it. That I'm glad <laughs> they skipped it. They would have been like, Daenerys is so dumb. I feel like there just would have been a lot of dumb jokes about it. So that, I liked that. Okay. And I liked the fact that um, uh, I watched a friend of mine who has not, hasn't read the books. I watched him see that, watch that scene, and he did gasp when the, when the hood was removed. He did. There was a little, oh. little bit of a nice reaction. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I, I was fine with it. I mean, I, I would have liked if they could have kept it hidden, but there's no way that they could have. Really. My opinion simply is that he looked like Emperor Palpatine. Yeah, he did. Or Obi Wan Kenobi. I honestly oh. thought it would kind of. I, I don't want to sound like I predicted exactly what would happen, but I kind of did. I just kind of knew they wouldn't try to hide it. Because we all know what he looks like already, and you can't really do that. They showed previously on, and they yeah, and then they reveal they showed that previously on, and they like emphasized the scene where Barristan leaves. So you kind of saw that was frustrating. I wish they hadn't done that. Yeah, that that gave it away. Yeah, but mainly I'm disappointed that we don't have strong bell walls. Yeah, no strong bell walls. Not even a wing. No, right? No bell walls of any kind. So, you said you had your friend watch it. And I like yeah. somebody had posted yeah, on the uh, the page how you need to film them when yeah. the Red Wedding happens. We oh. will do that. We will film <laughs> That's that. a good idea because he won't be watching it with us either. He usually gets something like, more later. He'll be watching it with us, but not when we're watching we'll it. We'll have already seen it. Yeah, so we'll yeah, have seen we'll it. Know it's so I'm going to have my camera right there, and I'll afterwards be like, sign this release form. I'm going to put this on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> We killed everybody! Yeah, really. It's gonna be brutal. Oh, it's gonna be horrible. Alright, so I'm gonna end this broadcast now. Okay. Thanks, everybody.